0: Call ClayGranger.com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, with me, your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. Oh, I am sorry for the delay in getting this episode out. I know it's just like a day late or almost a day late at this point, but I was laid up for two days with what I can only describe as an excruciating headache. I felt like someone was chiseling into my brain. I had to have ice packs on my face. I have these like I can only describe them as smooth stones, like they're like polished stones and they're very cool against the face and I would press them on my face and move them around and stuff. Just apparently they meant to move stuff inside your head. I don't know. I try, I would try anything that, I mean, this is the girl who literally made a wish on a dandelion the other night because they ran out of ideas of things to do that could help a situation um a friend of mine was in hospital and i was really upset and really worried and i wasn't going to pray was i no it's not helped me so far so i crying in my back garden away from people hiding hiding from people i was and uh, yeah, I'm I'm getting the laundry, it's nine. No, I was crying in the garden, holding a dandelion, making a fucking wish because I was scared shitless because I was worried that this person was gonna die. And that's... That's, that's exciting. I just... Oh, man, I just... I made a wish on a fucking dandelion. So no wonder I'm using stones and shit. Maybe there's properties in them that do stuff. I don't know. I don't know. So, in news, I suppose, skipping ahead from me having a fucking breakdown. It wasn't a breakdown. I was just really sad. And it's okay to feel sad about things and to feel helpless. And especially when I'm neurodivergent as well. So sometimes I know that I'm not gonna be the most comforting person and I find it easier to be comforting when I'm physically in the space with someone like that's not possible like in this scenario Uh, because like you'd be surprised like how much relief can be provided with like a hug I'm such a good hugger even though sometimes like I just can't deal with it but it's another story for another day but I'm such a good hugger. It's ridiculous. It's like, I'm very cozy. Like I snuggle very well. Um, Sidebar, my children use me as a pillow quite often. Sometimes they'll straight up lie on me. Like, I'm that comfy. And also they're dicks who like to make my sleeping uncomfortable. Not that I sleep much anyway, but that's not the point. Anyway, I had a point. Don't know what it was. Moving on. I am going to be speaking um, at the very last Heartland Pagan Festival. Um, it's into the night. It's oh, it's going to be so good. I'm doing a talk with a Q&A and then I've got three workshops. So the one hour talk with a Q&A is Witchcraft and Mysticism Throughout Human Evolution. And then I have three workshops. The Victorians ruined everything, a 19th century gay to mystics and more. The old gods and the new, colonialism, ethnic cleansing and the pagan revival. Paganism and the patriarchy, over five centuries of demonising women. So yeah, um, there's also going to be a live podcast recording there as well. But you'll actually have to be there to find out what that is. So I'm going to put a link for registration down below and you get a discount if you use the code KT23. So K-A-T-I-E-2-3. So that's going to be fun. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm going to be in August of this year. I'm going to be doing a speaking engagement, a little talk, a wee chat, something a bit fun. At the Dunfanaghy Workhouse for Heritage Week, because the theme is living heritage, and you know, I I've got to be something up my sleeve. You're gonna love it. I'm sorry, but my friend Shauna just <laughs> she just sent me a reel. Um, she's one of the few people that I allow to send me memes. Cause I she's one of the few, and she sent me. A, oh, I think it's Sharon someone who are dressed. Um. The only way I can describe it uh, is tacky camp rhinestone cowgirls Uh, it had me fucking giggling Jesus Christ Um, we (laughs) last year's New Year's uh, we had a theme of women who definitely didn't kill their husbands party (laughs) it was very femme fatale it was fabulous and there was gowns there were gowns darling and crowns gowns and crowns because that's just how we live our lives and i am now planning (laughs) the tackiest tackiest outfit and i'm so happy you have no idea like this is going to be glorious oh my and um oh goodness! i don't even know if i mentioned it i on a personal note deleted all of the dating apps i just deleted them i i don't i'm not on anything i'm not looking i'm content with where i am right now it's good i like it i like where i'm at i think i'm in a really good place like mentally <laughs> i say um i mean the life's a shit show and everything around me is going going mental and oh Oh yeah, I I sent my book uh, proposal, my book proposal, into like the publishing agent that reached out to me the first one, and now I've had another publisher reach out to me, and I I'm not gonna like deal with them until or unless things don't work out with the first one because I I, I kind of feel like a dick about it, you know. But we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Um. But I know what you're thinking, you're thinking quit your jibber jabber. In fact me. In fact you I will. But first, we've gotta get our source on. Elizabeth Stride and Jack the Ripper. The Life and Death of the Reputed Third Victim by David Yost. The Five by Holly Ribbonhold. The Whitechapel Murders. The Bendigo Advertiser. The Whitechapel Murders. Penny Illustrated Paper. The Illustrated Police News the police registers of public women. I'm going to apologise for my pronunciation on these next couple ones. Uh, Gothenburg uh the Kurset records. I feel like I sound like I'm underwater doing that. Immigrant and popular, uh, Gothenburg's Domkirchhofer Samlin. Oh, and the 1835 to 1860 Gothenburg censuses. Why can't I pronounce things properly today? Nightwalking, a nocturnal history of London by Matthew Beaumont. Sex, Sin and Suffering Venereal Diseases in European Society since eighteen seventy by Leslie A Hall and Roger Davidson Domestic Service and the Formation of European Identity by Antoinette Fauvemaux Syphilis and Marriage by Alfred Fournier. coming Sexual and Social Politics in Victorian London by Seth Coven Coffee and Coffee Houses by Ulla Heis. The Rise and Fall of the Victorian Servant by Pamela Horne. A History of European Women's Work, 1700 to the Present by Deborah Simington. Eden: The Nation's History by Franklin D. Scott. Policing Public Women, The Regulation of Prostitution in Stockholm, 1812 to 1880 by Yvonne Svanström. Jack the Ripper, The Definitive Casebook by Richard Whittington Egan. And casebook.org. Are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then let's begin. So before we really get into it, we should probably touch base on a few things about Elizabeth Stride. Elizabeth is known as the third canonical victim of Jack the Ripper. I have a difference of opinion on that one, and I will explain why at some point during this ramble. And also, in addition, furthermore... Elizabeth definitely falls into the category of what some would seem as as the less dead. Definitely she would fall into this idea of being a less worthy victim. And the whole purpose of this series, the the five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper, is to tell the story of these victims of their lives. And I'm not saying that Elizabeth was necessarily... A bad person. I'm just saying that she is a product of her environment. And did she always take the most righteous path? No. But sometimes that path wasn't really available to her. And yeah. But let's, let's just get into it. So this episode is dedicated to Aubrey. And now, let me tell you the tale of the life of Elizabeth Stride, the third canonical victim of Jack the Ripper. So, Elizabeth was originally born... Originally born? As of... No! Originally from... (sighs) You know what? That's funny. I'm keeping it in. I don't care. Elizabeth was born Elizabeth Gustav's daughter... On the 27th of November 1843, to Gustav Eriksson and Beta, Karl's daughter, at the Stora Tummelhead Farm in Torslanda, Sweden, which is still like relatively close to Gothenburg. Elizabeth is the second child in the family and also a second daughter. So she has a big sister, Anna Christina, who's like three years older than she is. And you know, I'm sure that these farmers in rural Torslanda were really happy to have another girl in the house and not a strapping young man who could do the heavy farm stuff. Well, they don't actually have to wait too long because um, her younger brother Lars is born in 1848 and Svant in 1851. So, you know, there were boys coming. It's fine. But this is, you know, a farmland and it was actually a period of drought. So, like, obviously, that's not good. However, even though this is not the best time, like, agriculturally, you know, this family is actually doing pretty okay. So, um, Gustav, he's he's pretty comfortable as a farmer. Um, they're doing pretty well because they've got like fields of. Like potatoes and flax and grains and all that good cereal stuff. But they've also got cows, chickens, pigs and a horse. So, like, they're doing fairly well. They also have servants. Now, there was this act passed, uh, the Servant Act of 1833. And what it did was it made... So that anybody who didn't have their own like source of income, like they didn't own land, they didn't rent land, they didn't, you know, have a full-time job, they didn't have a trade, you know, anything like that, that it was compulsory for them to find a job um generally as as some kind of servant. So, But this was like a two-way street, so it meant that nobody could like overcharge for their labour, but also that they would have to be treated a certain way and they would have to act a certain way. So you couldn't like refuse like a reasonable request by your employer. So you couldn't decide to just doss off on something, but they had to pay you a decent wage. You would be dutiful and fulfill your obligations, and you know be obedient. But it also meant that you had to be looked after and cared for as a servant. So if you were sick or ill, it was your employer's responsibility to ensure that you were like, well cared for, that you had the necessary, like, medical supplies and you were looked after. They had to nurse you back to health, effectively. And they also had to take care of your spiritual well-being. So your employer had to be the person guiding you, you know, religiously, you know. And and the other thing that's funny about the social class in Sweden is domestic service wasn't generally seen as, like, a lifetime goal. That wasn't going to be your long-term job. It was to be, like, a, a short-term job before you got married. Like, and so, like, most families actually had servants. So, like, um, Gustav and Cole, they had servants. And, you know, the children, when they grew up, they would go and do some domestic servitude of some kind. And then they would get married and they would have homes of their own. Like, one of the reasons why women were supposed to go into domestic service was so that they would learn how to run a household. As if they didn't grow up in one, you know what I mean? And the thing was, it became a concept of... um, Kind of like keeping up with the Joneses. So, some women, in order to have that, you know, societal sort of peerage, whatever they want or hierarchy i should say which is not kind of the same it's very it's very funny because like everybody had servants so some people would have more servants even if there wasn't enough jobs for those servants to do you know just to say that they had servants to just show off so yeah in this farm there were servants and maids and farmhands all that good stuff and, again, the way that the, the class system, it's not like a caste, you know. There's a lot of social mobility in this. So, like, maids would share beds with, like, the daughters of the house. Like, it was a, a communal living situation. You would be eating dinner at the same table as your employer. You would be doing your prayers with your employer. Like, and then the, I think her family was Lutheran. They were Lutheran. So Elizabeth would have had a Lutheran upbringing. So she grew up with servants in the house. And she learned the basics of being a farm girl, really. And all the kind of things you would learn. You know, churning butter and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, all the kind of stuff inside the house. How to clean floors and other such things. Cooking. Of course cooking's part of it. Cleaning, cooking, domestic labour. You know, so she would have had a very basic education. So, like parishes would have schools, and the boys would have got like more of an education than she did. So she could read as far as I know, but she couldn't write. But she wasn't—I'm going to say she wasn't stupid, right? She was smart, and because she came from like a good Lutheran family. You know, she was expected to have a better knowledge of um like the Bible and stuff. So she was supposed to be well versed on that. But yeah. Elizabeth Gustav's daughter. She has her confirmation at fifteen. And at this point her older sister Anna Christina has already been, you know, out doing her her servitude, um, for like two years at this point, I think. And Anna Christina is quite lucky in a way, because this happened more regularly than you'd think. So the the employer that she that she worked for, they ended up getting married. So she was actually really, really lucky in that sense. But because Anna Christina was already out there and already in Gothenburg, it was much easier to find employment for Elizabeth. Especially because Anna Christina was doing so well and because she was a respectable young woman. In that day and age so the fact that she was doing so well you know and because Anna Christina was such an upstanding citizen you know Elizabeth would be seen the same by extension and so Elizabeth who's like a month away from her 16th birthday she heads to Gothenburg for her work as you know domestic servant as a maid and you know she's desirable As a servant because she is from you know a rural area so although there's like not really like a distinct class system in Gothenburg there still was a preference they wanted you know the farm girls they wanted the women who had not grown up in the city because growing up in the city it makes you aware of the darkness and the debauchery that's sort of kicking around but These rural girls, these farm girls, they were seen as, you know, naive or innocent, depending on how you want to flip that coin. So Elizabeth has left Toslanda and moves to the Carl johan Parish in Gothenburg and into the home of Lars Frederick Olsen. Now, Olsen isn't, like, very rich, but again, this is all part of the Servants Act. And he and his wife, Johanna, they have two servants. So you've got Elizabeth and then Lena Carlson. And I don't know how much work there was for the two of them to do, along with, like, the mistress of the house. So I don't know. Mm. But again, it's more of a pride thing than anything else. But, you know, the girls couldn't really go out and do anything without you know, the master or mistress's permission. So they wouldn't be going out to the beer house and they wouldn't be going out to meet um, or find, I suppose, a paramour of any, you know, situation. And because of this, the majority of the company that Elizabeth would keep is basically whoever's in that bloody house. So the men, the women, whoever is the frequent flyers in the Olsen household, that's the people she's hanging out with. Now, clearly, some kind of fraternization happened in that household. And here's the thing. It's not uncommon for, you know, relationships to occur, you know, in those kind of close environments. However, there's definitely a power dynamic here, even though he's just, like, the wealthy, lower middle class. She's a farm girl, you know what I mean? She's a servant, and regardless of how it works, a master and a servant, there's always going to be a bloody power dynamic there. And Elizabeth, well, something happens in that house because, you know, contracts usually last like a good number of years because the whole point is for these women to like get a grasp on household duties and to like earn a dowry to like make their money. Now it's supposed to last for a decent amount of time, but this employment is dissolved like just under two years, like a year and a half. So October 1862 is when the employment starts and then it dissolves in February of 1864. That's just over a year. And so she moves to a different address, which is, like, just up the road a bit, actually. It's just, like, round the corner. And she's still listed as a domestic servant, but she's not listed as a servant to whom. So I'm thinking logically about this... It seems to me that seeing as she was in an abode and was not willingly forthcoming with the name of an employer, it seems to me that she was maybe a little bit of a kept woman. Maybe she had been promised something. Maybe this person was making good on their promises. And maybe they were going to have to stop that soon. Because by March the following year, Elizabeth is very clearly pregnant. She's like six months along. So wherever she went to, somebody was, you know, having some fun up there. And this is a takes two to Tango. We don't know if she was forced into a situation or whether this was... I'm going to call it grooming. You know, whether it was grooming or by force and then had no other option or was... I don't want to say a willing participant because, again, the power dynamic, it doesn't doesn't feel comfortable. Because at what point does she really have agency? Because clearly she has been left out in the cold in this one. And not just because it's March in Sweden. But she's clearly pregnant and she becomes of notice to the authorities. Now, you're thinking, why would they care if a woman was pregnant? Well, here's the thing. In Sweden, it was basically illegal to have a child outside of wedlock. And if you were seen to be less than virtuous, well, then the police would be looking for you. So they had this register of public women, right, in Sweden. Uh, well, there's two lists, actually. People who were suspected... And then people who were, yeah, official. And basically, how do I put it? It's like a whore list. It's like a list of of prostitution. And if you had a a child outside wedlock, you're basically seeing the same. A woman selling her body, right? Now, I'm going to call this prostitution because I don't see agency in this. Like, it's not like modern, you know someone chooses to be a sex worker. This, there is a lack of agency here. This is a forced situation where women have no other option. So Elizabeth, she is perceived as being, you know, a fallen woman. And as such, she's basically pushed into this scenario. So she has to go on this list. This official register. And she becomes... Alman Kvina 97. Part of me just wanted to go like Dutch with it, but with that weird Swedish voice I do whenever I speak Dutch and just be like, Seten And you would have been like, yeah, that's totally, totally Swedish. You'd be fooling me there. No, no, I I don't know Swedish numbers. Uh, My brother speaks Swedish. I probably should have asked him. But anyway. Because, yeah, up until 1864, like having affairs, committing adultery, and having illegitimate children was, you know, illegal. But the weirdest thing is, like, you know, this is gone now, but it's still perceived as as bad, as dodgy, as shitty. Except the only person it seems to punish is the women, Kelsey Preeze. So this police register, you know, the two lists of the suspected... And the actual lecherous living women, ooh, full of debauchery and deviancy and all those other D-words. And, like, she gets taken and gets put on this register. And people who are suspected, they're taken in through the back of this, like, police station. And they get inspected, they get a strip naked. And the whole point of it... Is to shame and to ridicule and upset you know the same thing we saw with Polly in the workhouse originally it's all to do with placing the burden of the blame solely on the women as if it's their fault and see this is where the Contagious Disease Act comes in so there are these laws that you know allow this to happen because they're trying to like quell the spread of syphilis because of course it's the women's fault that the syphilis is spreading Not the men who are wetting their whistle. No, no. The women's fault for doing it. Like, so Elizabeth goes in, she gets inspected, and as it turns out, she has syphilis. Now, syphilis is a weird disease, so it kind of has long-term effects if not treated. It's not treated the same way now as it was then. Back then, it was treated with, like, mercury. And they would do uh, sort of mercury infusions into your body. They would do like how would I put it? Like they would diffuse it. They would like have like a mercury steam. Now because Elizabeth was pregnant, they, they couldn't do that. They wouldn't use mercury on her, which is one thing. But what they did use on her was acid. They used acid to um like cut off, you know, warts and whatnot. And <sighs> uh, trigger warning. I'm going to talk about child loss. So you might want to skip forward about a minute. Okay. So uh, what happens is is she's in there for a month. And she ends up, as a result of this treatment, uh, prematurely giving birth. And there is a stillborn baby girl, as a result of this treatment. Now, the child could have contracted syphilis while being inside her, but again, we won't know that because, you know, this procedure caused an early death. Now, that's going to be an incredibly horrific experience for this young woman to go through and to go through it alone and to have, again, this Horrific shame and blame on her, as if it's all her fault. And she's in the curset, and she is labelled as a fallen woman, the villain, the vixen. And basically, she can't get a job because she's on this fucking register. And as a result of this, she ends up having to go into the very line of work they accused her of initially. No. Nah. Cause clearly whoever the man was who was supporting her initially, the moment she got picked, he just fucking skedaddled. Like, don't know what he did, but he didn't do the right thing, that's all I'm saying. And she ends up moving to what is commonly referred to as Nymph Street. So it's basically just, like, kind of like the Red Light District. It's just an area of women selling themselves to the Johns. You know, because they have to fucking survive. Because there's literally no other option available to these women because they're on the bloody register. Anyway. At some point after this, she gets treated for a venereal ulcer and she goes back into the coloset. And when she's there this time, so she'd gone out in May and come back in October, but then of November that year, she is seen by this um lovely Lutheran lady, uh, Maria Ingrid Weisner. So like her husband is like a German composer, I think. Anyway, there was this sort of trend that happened of sort of these lower, slightly lower class sort of religious women who saw these fallen women, as they were, as kind of like a charity case, like rehabilitation, you know, they would provide them with, you know, spiritual counselling and give them an opportunity to get out of this hole. So, Elizabeth gets her healthy tick, ding, 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 off she goes, and they're like, she's cured. Um, She's not, by the way, because syphilis c- comes and goes and it's dormant and it's, a whole smorgasbord of just horrific, horrific things. But anyway, the, the symptoms are cured, shall we say. Okay, so she goes to work as a domestic for um, Maria Weisner, And she gets an offer of work, of a home, and someone willing to give her... Like a helping hand, an opportunity. And Elizabeth grabs it with both. You know, she's like, yes please, thank you. Because there's only two ways to like remove yourself from the police register. And that is to have a, you know, a decent member of society. um, State that you've been like clean living and being a generally good old person. And the other one was to get married. Clearly whoever put her in that position didn't help her out. But that's neither here nor there. So off she goes and she goes to work for the Wisners, and Maria writes a letter in order to get Elizabeth's name struck from like the register of shame. So now she's off the register and she can start living her life a wee bit. And what's been happening in Gothenburg at this time is it has become like a pretty big trading city. So there would be people... um, Like, I think they were called, like, Little Londoners or something like that. So you would have all these different nationalities coming in and out of Gothenburg. And the opportunity for work and travel, you know, was more common than you'd think at this time. And so Elizabeth, because she'd been there with the Wisners, she wasn't there too long. But because of the reputation that she'd gained, she was still being watched by the police. Like, they were still keeping an eye on her. Because having your name struck from the register just wasn't enough for them. They wanted to catch you again because of their own twisted morality. But because she had to resort to prostitution down on the nymph street, there was every possibility that she would be recognised and her reputation would again be thrown into question and this shit would hit the fan for her. So she's only with the Wiseners a little while when somehow... Uh, she receives a windfall. So she gets some money and she says it's an inheritance from her mother's death when her mama died like a couple years earlier. So, mm, doesn't really seem likely. And also, we issue is that, you know, women under 25 in Sweden weren't allowed to inherit shit. So, kind of an issue. Don't think that happened. So, clearly this money came from somewhere. Could it possibly be from someone who felt really fucking guilty But everything they did to her? Perhaps. We don't know that. That's just a guess. An educated guess, but a guess nonetheless. I didn't mean to rhyme, but there we go. So, luckily, fortuitously, in a crazy random happenstance, an opportunity befalls Elizabeth. An opportunity to travel to England. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. But it's not just conspiracies, there's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And Elizabeth looks round at her life and goes, fuck this for a game of soldiers, and gets on a ship, and heads To London. So when Elizabeth lands in London in the winter of 1866, she is working in this townhouse in Hyde Park, or near Hyde Park, right? Who she was working for, we're not sure, but they were fucking rich. They definitely were loaded, they had money. Money, money. Because you don't live near or on Hyde Park. Not on Hyde Park, nobody lives on Hyde Park apart from the fucking pigeons, but you don't live near Hyde Park without having decent dough. So she's there, she's working there, and as she's doing her daily errands, you know, she saunters into a coffee house for a wee nibble, and who does she meet? Somehow, someway, Pigeon Stride, a carpenter by trade in his like mid-40s. And he's like one of nine kids, which is um, I mean, sometimes being one of nine is not too bad. I can allow it <laughs> and um he was for a while looking after his like elderly father, who had made a business and a decent living, but for a bunch of reasons, he off skedaddles and ends up in London, you know, to make his own way to be a decent carpenter, and he is. That being said, John was not Elizabeth's only admirer. So when she was working in Hyde Park, as, you know, just a wee housemaid, she was courting a police officer. Um, i do trying to remember if they were City of London or the Metropolitan Police, because I feel like there's, maybe it's the Met News, the Met Old. I feel like there's two. There's definitely two different police forces at, at work here. But yeah, one of them, there was a dude, he was a policeman and he was courting her, but because <laughs> domestic servant, housemaid, the hours were long and unsociable, so yeah. And like, another thing that would have been difficult for Elizabeth, who I forgot to mention was apparently just stunning. She was like 5'2", and had like dark curly hair, she was meant to be just gorgeous. But yeah, Elizabeth's hours were long and also... Like, as I said, like in Sweden, the social hierarchy isn't really as severe as it was and or as in England or the UK or however you want to put it. Now, the, the, you know, everybody had a maid in, in Sweden, like everybody had servants and it was kind of the norm. Everybody just did it. But here in the fancy townhouse in Hyde Park, there would have been a hierarchy. There probably would have been like a butler a housekeeper, a valet governance of some kind. There would have been like anything, like loads of of these it's a hierarchy, it's a fucking pyramid of people but yeah it would have been a very different like way of being, she wouldn't like spend the same sort of time with her employers there wouldn't be the same level of fraternisation that there was with you know, the people in Sweden which I guess is kind of a good thing for her but There is a rumour of like some kind of scandal happening, we just don't have any information but just a whisper of a scandal that forced her to leave that employment. And I think this was either late 1868 or early 1869, but whatever happened she did manage to leave with a reference, which is great, and she ended up securing employment. And she ends up working for Elizabeth Bond, who's a widow and she owns this... It's a fancy boarding house, right? It's for the genteel clientele. So, like, decent lodgers, you know, not scummy lodgers. Like, well, well-groomed and mannerly, respectable, with just enough money, you know, that sort of way. And then, in 1869, Elizabeth marries John Stride. And what's, like, funny about this is she's Lutheran, he's Methodist, but... But instead of picking, like, one over the other, they just get married in, like, the local parish. Just, like, that'll do, that church will do, fine, thanks, brilliant. Now, Elizabeth, as you said, gorgeous, and she's 25 at this point. John Stride, we literally don't have any definitive description of the man, but he's in his mid-40s. So he's either aged really well, or Elizabeth is looking for comfort in an older man. Again, not here to judge. But yes, on the 7th of March, 1869, Elizabeth Gustav's daughter becomes Mrs. Elizabeth Stride. And for whatever reason, I mean, we all know the reason, but Elizabeth, she's keeping her past hidden. Like, she actually puts down a fake name for her dad. which well, gets someone else to write it down, because obviously she can't write. And she calls him Augustus Gustafsson. Like, she could have told them any name, and they would have been like, yep. That, that sounds right. (laughs) She just made it up. So after they get married, they move out into the East End over to Poplar because John is going to open his own coffee house. But he's also near enough to the docks as well, so because he's a carpenter, it's like he can fall back on that work. And that's great. So John and Elizabeth, you know, they're they're hoping that they're going to grab people in this coffee house because John's teetotal. And so he thinks this is going to be, like, an easy, and easy, like, jump. Honestly, they're just ahead of their time at this point because selling a delicious caffeinated brew in an area with high footfall, that's just smart. Like, that's a well good idea. Unfortunately, they're the people of the time. They are more interested in beer and gin than they are in coffee. Yeah coffee houses, they kind of had a tough fight with the pubs, really. You know, that's had some stiff competition, which the strides were soon to learn very, very quickly. So by 1871, here's the thing, most new businesses fail within the first two years, that is just a fun fact for you, and this is no exception. So they had to move their business because there just wasn't enough people who didn't want to go drink booze. And also, it's the Victorian era. I'm not surprised people wanted to get drunk. Like, I mean, have you heard about chimney sweep scrotum? I'm just saying. So they moved their business, you know, up to the Poplar High Street to try and get, like, more footfall, more trade. And this business wasn't doing too well either. So they were kind of relying on an inheritance, actually, because John Stride's dad, William, He had properties, he had built up like decent money, and for most of John's life he had gone and supported his dad. He'd stayed home, he'd done everything, and apart from his brother Daniel who seems to have had some issues. Resulting in a whole thing where uh, like, Daniel stole some money and John refused to prosecute him and eventually he just leaves. John just goes to London now. So when his dad William dies, everyone's expecting, you know, a piece of the pie. Now Daniel inherits like a fuck-ton of shit. He earns property and everything else and money. His sister Sarah Ann, who lived just like three or four doors down, she inherits some property. Um John's like pretty rich brother, who's a fucking surgeon as far as I remember. Um Edward. Edward, yeah. He gets fucking property and everything. And John gets sweet fuck all. Nothing. Not a smidge. Not a whisper. Not a whew. Consideration. There is no reference or acknowledgement to John in the will whatsoever. And... I mean, that is, William, you are a petty bitch. That's all I'm saying. Like, oh, and you say that women are like the vicious ones. Clearly, this dude, spiteful, vindictive, just a dick, actually. Just fucking awful. So, yeah, um, John and Elizabeth, they had to sell this to their coffee house. And John had to fall back on his, you know, his original career as a carpenter. But again, he's in his 40s. Like, he's not a young man. And this is physical work. Like, it's not easy. But he has to. And he's going to do everything he can to try and, you know, keep them safe and secure. And it's 1874. And he's working. They're surviving. And during all this time, you may notice, I have not mentioned pregnancies or babies. During, you know, a period where this would have been likely to happen. It's Victorian London, like, they would have been shagged. But chances are that because of, of you know, contracting syphilis when she did, it's highly likely that Elizabeth was, well, infertile that she at the very least couldn't, you know, carry her pregnancy to term. But no children were had at all during this time. So we don't really have too much information, or any real information, over the next couple of years. But in 1877, Liz and John have separated. Now, Liz, she hasn't gone into a workhouse yet, or anything like that. She's decided to take her chances on the street. So she gets arrested a couple times for, like, vagrancy, drunk and disorderly, you know. And she used to live with a teetotal man, so clearly she's out self-medicating here. So because she has been roughing it, she's been sleeping out in the streets, um, Elizabeth gets forced into the Poplar workhouse, like, she has to go. Now, she does return to John at some point during that, and they try to make it work again. So, the following year, this accident happens. It's, a, it's the, probably one of the biggest tragedies in London in the last hundred years, probably. Ish. And it's the Princess Alice disaster. Now, this is like a boating day. It's a day out for the members of this German church, right? So, it's mainly women and children that are on this boat. And what happens is this boat... Sinks and a fuck ton of people die. And Elizabeth, she's thinking, I can use this to my advantage. And she starts telling people that, you know, she was there with her, you know, seven, eight kids, nine kids, too many kids, right? And some of them died, her husband died, and they were in, the kids were in an orphanage, and she got. Kicked in the face and that's why like her teeth are damaged and that's why she has no palate in her mouth which is a sign of long-term syphilis for the record and um, I've spent a lot of time studying venereal diseases don't ask why just accept it and she's not like on the official register of people that tr- that applied for this grant that you could get this um relief fund Uh, But she seems to be telling this story to like anyone and everyone who listened to her effectively. So Elizabeth, she is, how to put this, she speaks English so well that you'd think she was English. But she could probably convince people that she was German. Because like most English people probably wouldn't have recognised the different forms of accents at the time. Yeah, know, it's, it's foreign. And she would have said, I'm German. I'm from like a certain part of Germany. They would have been like, yes, that is correct. So, yes. And she would tell this story when she was separated from John. Especially because she was like, my husband's dead. Please give me money. My husband is dead. And it's very sad. Money, please. So, yeah, she would use that. And... It would also be really convenient for her when the time she was separated from John, you know, um, but they reconcile here and there, and then in eighteen eighty, she actually contacts us with his church and asks for for a relief fund because John is sick, and she enters into the Stepney Union Workhouse um, in uh, February. And then in April that year, she ends up in the Hackney Union workhouse. And yeah, she's got... How do I put this? She's referred to as destitute. So clearly things are not great for her. And somewhere along the lines, she gets the nickname Long Liz. Something to do with her long face? Or maybe her hair? Or... Another one I heard was, it was because stride means like a long step and it was just like a play on that. Because, I don't know. I mean, it's at least imaginative. It's got a tiny bit of thought in there. We should, but Long Liz, she gets called Long Liz. And by 1881, she gets admitted to the Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary because she's got bronchitis. So... She's there, she's being treated in like, it's like December of that year. And then by January of 1882, she gets moved out of the infirmary and into the workhouse. So the bronchitis is like, they're like, it's under control. You can go into the workhouse now and you can work and, you know, earn your keep. And I think John's also in an infirmary or in a workhouse at this point. But their marriage completely breaks down and then Elizabeth, sort of, in and out, here and there, come see, come see. She lives in thirty-two Flower in Dean Street, which is, I'm going to say dodgy, to say the least. And in 1884, Liz Elizabeth, she gets um, some financial assistance from the Swedish church. And later that year, John Stride passes away in the Poplar Asylum from heart failure. Like, he'd gone from the workhouse into the asylum because he was dying, effectively. But Elizabeth, she was in Florendine Street, which is, again, dodgy as fuck. And she's listed as a charwoman, which is just again I've discussed this before. It's like the lowest form of domestic servitude. It's just the really heavy work. Like it's it's not it's not good for anybody. And at some point during this time as well, she bumps into this woman, um, Mary Malcolm, who's like a tailor, tailoress. Yeah, who thinks Elizabeth is her sister also named Elizabeth. And it's kind of weird because it's more like wishful thinking on Mary's part because she knew her sister, like, struggled. She'd been, you know, committed and a bunch of other stuff had happened. A terrible divorce. All this jazz. And so when she sees Long Liz, she's like, that's my sister. And between 1883 and 1888, like, these two women would meet kind of in secret and Mary would give Elizabeth money just, I think, out of guilt or some kind of need for for compassion and care. Like, every Saturday, I think at four o'clock, she would give her two shillings, which is, you know, it's a lot back then. But Mary also gave her, like, clothes and stuff. And at one point, really weird, Elizabeth had shown up with a baby and she got Mary to look after it for a spell, seeing it was, like, her son. And then after taking the boy back, she was like, oh no, the baby had died uh, when it was probably just borrowed from someone to help, like, beg. Because that was quite a common thing, though, you would like borrow a baby to try and get people to to give you more money when you were out begging, you know, panhandling and whatnot. Now, back to 1884, when John dies in the Stepney Sick Asylum, right, in Whitechapel, he... This really affects Elizabeth. She fucking spirals. Like, a couple weeks after after the fact, she gets arrested on commercial road for soliciting and also drunken disorderly behaviour. And so she's arrested. And she gets sentenced with seven days hard labour. And, like, after this point, there's no, like, official record of Elizabeth, like, prostituting herself again. Clearly times are tough for Elizabeth. This is not going well for her. But yeah, after John dies, things don't go well for her. And then she meets Michael Kidney. And so she meets him and they start living together. Um, Michael Kidney, he's like a dock worker and he's also a volunteer in the Army Reserve. And he's, he's younger than Liz, so... Go Liz, good for you. But they start living together. They've got lodgings on um, Devonshire Street and then Fashion Street. Now this was not an easy relationship because the two of them like to drink and the two of them like to fight. Michael Kidney more so. Like Elizabeth reported him to the police for beating her and his brutality and And like a lot of women who suffered domestic violence, she retracted those claims. Because what else are you going to do? Like, so they would fight and he would do things and she would leave. And every time they left over the three years they were together, every time she left, she would go down to Flower and Dean Street. She would stay in the boarding house and she would come back every now and again and he would say it's because, you know, she liked him more than she liked anybody else. And then Kidney. Kidney, who was a drunk and a domestic abuser, was also, and you're going to be shocked by this, I know, an adulterer. So he would cheat on her because he contracts syphilis. Now he couldn't get it from her because at this point she's not contagious because that's just how the stages of syphilis work. She's not contagious at this point, so he was clearly out stooping someone else. Speaking of syphilis, so syphilis is a degenerative condition and it basically rots your brain, right? And I'm not entirely surprised that between the between 1886 and 1888, she's swearing and cursing and using uh, obscenities like really consistently like they're getting worse right just with abundance and she's getting arrested for being drunk and disorderly and Elizabeth at this point is like in the tertiary like phase of, of syphilis so yeah she's arrested four times in three months and things are just not getting better and she's got neurosyphilis, and because she's a drinker as well like, the, the, the issues of the disease, the symptoms, you know, they're, they're hidden by the fact that she drinks. So, like, people would just see the fact that she's drinking, and they wouldn't make the connection with the fact that her brain is deteriorating. But yes, after leaving Michael Kidney a final time, Elizabeth is staying at thirty-two Floor in Dean Street. So, Elizabeth, she does some cleaning of the workhouse on the 29th of September, 1888, and she earns a sixpence for it. And after that, she heads on to the Queen's Head pub on Commercial Street. So she goes out for a bit, but she does return back about half six that evening with Elizabeth Tanner, who's, you know, in charge of Flarendine Street. And so she pays for her lodgings. So later on that evening, Elizabeth gets ready to go out. And she asks um Catherine Lane, another woman in... near the lodging house to look after a length of green velvet you know she's like this is good quality fabric you know what she was gonna do with it we don't know she's only got one set of clothes she's probably gonna like sell the velvet probably and she heads out the door and this is where things get muddy we have all of these contradicting reports regarding where Elizabeth was and what she was doing like, apparently she's been seen arguing with a man. one point she was walking alone. She was wearing flowers. She wasn't wearing flowers. There were so many reports of this woman was in this doorway and this woman was over there and they were clearly all Elizabeth Stride. <sighs> no. Now, the most credible of these supposed sightings of Elizabeth Stride is by Israel Schwartz. He's Hungarian. It's quarter to one in the morning and he's... Torturing through a, you know, commercial street. And he's going on to Berner Street, I think it is. And he sees, like, a man and a woman kind of having an argument, a disagreement of sorts. And as Schwartz is walking up towards this couple, like, this fight is starting to get physical. The dude physically throws the woman to the ground. And the woman screams thrice, right? Ah, ah, ah. he said it wasn't like loud but like she just screamed three times and so this dude crosses the street because of course he isn't going to intervene in this violence against women of course not it's Victorian London it's fine apparently but as he crosses the street there's a dude standing in the darkness smoking a pipe and this dude is freaking out so he just fucking legs it and somebody shouts Lipsky after him, which is just a way of being anti-Semitic. But yes, yeah, so around one a.m. on the thirtieth of September, this dude who sells costume jewelry is going through Duckfield's yard, and there he sees the body of Elizabeth Stride. So at some point, probably early thirtieth of September, eighteen eighty-eight. Elizabeth Stride met her death at the hands of a violent man. Her throat was slit. And I don't usually talk about the death specifically of the victims, but mm, there's a few things that don't quite add up here for me. So this is known as the Night of the Double Event because there were two murders that happened and they're both attributed to Jack the Ripper. So the theory is, Jack had killed Elizabeth, he was about to do his stuff, and he's interrupted. At this point, he just fucking legs it and goes to murder another woman because he needs to satiate this thirst for blood. Obviously. However, I'm not entirely sure that's the case. So the MO is very, very different because the location doesn't add up. So this is a busy yard, like, behind a club. You know, there's a lot of thoroughfare. There's lots of footfall. Like, you're more likely to be caught. So far, every time, you know, Jack has had his victim, it's been somewhere secluded. It's been very early hours of the morning. It is deliberately, so he has time to do what he needs to do. To do this... In a busy area where he's likely to get caught. The way the escalation process is going, this just doesn't add up. It seems that it's more likely that Elizabeth, who is known to get aggressive and get in a fight, that someone, whether it was someone looking for money or someone just looking for a thrill slit her throat, and left her there. Elizabeth Stride's death is the act of a violent man. An emotional man. A man who cannot get his shit together. So much so, that he decided to murder a clearly ill woman. Elizabeth Stride, I am convinced, is a ripper victim but not a victim of Jack the Ripper. So obviously all the propaganda and sensationalism goes out after her death. And she's recognised by the, you know, the police officer that once courted her. And she's also recognised and identified, I should say, by a member of the Swedish church that she'd registered at. And I think he was one of the only few people at her funeral. So there's no money for anything. And she didn't really make connections so she gets lowered into a pauper's grave and this fella stands out at her inquest and talks about her and tries to give her some autonomy and he provides a prayer in Swedish a Swedish prayer at her funeral and so ends the story of Elizabeth Stride. Now, if you liked my retelling of this horrific story, feel free to rate and review five stars, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, if you write something in the review, it just boosts up the algorithm somehow. It just really helps me on the business end of things. Now, um, God, I feel so weird having to be like really positive after just this horrific tale of of drudgery and shame and pain. Like it's oh it's so exhausting. oh I feel weird about it. But yeah, uh in the iTunes, Apple Podcast but anything you say just, just helps. It does. No. Uh, you could say anything. You could tell me your favourite holiday. You could tell me your least favourite pie filling. I don't know. Whatever works. Doesn't really need to be, but me. Nobody reads it anyway, apart from me, who loves to hear your compliments. Because I'm just that person who needs your constant validation. I'm kidding, or am I? A wee bit. So yes, don't forget you can follow me on the socials. Um, I have some Patreon stuff coming out at the end of the week as well. I'm hooded no pod on like nearly everything, apart from Twitter, where I'm hooded whatnoPD because there weren't enough characters in the username. I could have shortened it down, but I did not do that. So, recommendation time. Gonna do recommendations. So, we have reading. You know what? Everybody should read at least one horrible histories book. That's your assignment. Go read a horrible histories book. They're, they're fun and they're generally close to the truth. It's always funnier the closer you are to the truth when it comes to history. That's I'm saying. Uh, for Listening. I am going to recommend the song Labour by Paris Paloma. It fills me with a feminine rage which I just kind of need it at occasions and it just, it's so powerful and it makes me think of so many events. It's just astounding. And for watching... You know what I was watching actually? And I'm going to recommend. I don't know if I'm watching because it's good. Or I'm watching it because I'm just invested in Beth Dutton as a character. Because I generally like unlikable women in TV shows. So Yellowstone. I've been watching Yellowstone. And I think I have a thing for Rip Wheeler. I I wasn't expecting it. But uh, maybe I like a reformed man. Or just a broken man. Either way. I'm I'm feeling it. So that is everything this week and I shall bid you farewell. Adios, au revoir, au revoir my friends. Uh, bye bye.